The rest of you can turn uh, either in your Bible, if you have one, or in the bulletin to Psalm 25. That'll be our text for the morning. Uh, We're in a series in the Psalms right now, looking at the different ways in which they help us to connect with God. Um, All Scripture does this. All Scripture helps us to connect with God. But the Psalms have a special way of giving us language for just about every situation in life, every emotion in life that we encounter. Um, The late theologian John Calvin said that the Psalms were an anatomy for all parts of the soul. Uh, That everything that we might experience in life, the good, the bad, um, the unjust, um, anger, rejoicing, everything you can imagine is represented for us in the Psalms. And our Psalm this morning is going to help us connect with God through surrender. Psalm 25 is our passage. Follow along as I read that for us. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, and he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. And we ask you to do that just now. Um, What we need most is to hear from you. So by your Holy Spirit, would you draw us to yourself? Open our ears, open our hearts. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, What About Bob is a movie uh, that came out in 1991 uh, that stars Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfuss. And uh, Richard Dreyfuss plays a psychotherapist named uh, Dr. Leo Marvin uh, who is trying to get away with his family for a week of vacation. And Bill Murray uh, plays an overly dependent, needy patient Um, named Bob Wiley, and uh, Bob uh, follows his psychotherapist on vacation 
um, because he is so needy and so desperate for help that he just can't stand the thought of him being away for a week. And so he just persistently bothers this family as they're on vacation. He shows up unannounced. He crashes their lake trip and eventually he ends up just hanging out with the family while they're on vacation. Um, One of the subplots of the movie is uh, Dr. Marvin's relationship with his 12-year-old son, uh, Sigmund, uh, whom they call Siggy. Um, One of Dr. Marvin's goals for this vacation is to get Siggy to learn how to dive off the dock and into the lake. And the dad's approach, as it would be for many dads, is to force his son to do it. To control the process, to make it happen, to just get him to do it, to force Siggy to dive. And what do you think happens? Siggy doesn't respond well to that. He doesn't want to dive. And so Siggy ends up really discouraged. He's sitting there on the dock. And Bob, Bill Murray's character, the overly dependent patient, walks out on the dock. He sees Siggy sitting there discouraged. He starts talking to him. And Siggy shares, you know, my dad just really wants me to dive. I can't do it. I keep overthinking it. I just can't make myself do it. I'm really scared. And to which Bob responds, he says, yesterday I went sailing and I learned how to do it on the first try. He says, "Um, what I realize is I need to let the boat do all the work. And if you've seen the movie, then you know, in order to get Bill Murray's character to go sailing, they literally tied him to the mast of the ship. Other people were sitting on the sailboat. They had, he was so scared, they had to tie him to the mast of the ship. And he starts sailing through the lake. And he he gets so elated when he's sailing, he he starts yelling, I'm sailing! I'm sailing! I'm a sailor! And he goes and sails. And so he's telling Siggy about this. And he says, you know, I realize I had to let the boat do the work. And so Siggy's sitting there thinking about this. And so they go to the end of the dock, he, Siggy, and, and Bill Murray's character, Bob, and, and Siggy begins to tell him everything about it. And, and, and there's something about this idea of letting the boat do the work, of not overthinking it, of surrendering, that really connects with Siggy. And sure enough, Siggy takes the step and dives off the dock and is elated and instantly starts doing it over and over again. But what happened? The more his dad tried to force Siggy to dive, the less control the dad actually had over his son diving. And the more Siggy surrendered and stopped trying to control his diving technique, the easier it got to dive. And we've all experienced things like this. Maybe you're we're in a gym, you're trying to shoot free throws. The more you think about form and technique and getting it just right, the more you start missing. And the more you just go by feel and surrender all of that, the more you actually start making the shots. That makes total sense when you hear it. But it is so difficult to give up control and to actually surrender our lives to God. It's so difficult. Um, Everything in us screams at us to do the opposite, especially if you grew up in a Western culture. Here in America, we value what? Independence, making it happen, controlling our own destiny, not surrender. But this psalm invites us into surrender and not just surrendering a portion of our lives to God, but surrendering everything to Him. So how do we surrender everything to God? Four things we'll look at this morning. One, we trust God with our enemies. Two, we trust God with our time. Three, we trust God with our direction. And four, we trust God with our sins. So first, how do we surrender everything to God? We trust Him with our enemies. Look back at verses 2 and 3 again. It says, O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Uh, Skip down to verse 15. It says, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. 
Then down to verse 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. Okay, so King David is the one who wrote this psalm. And as king of Israel, he had real enemies um, who surrounded him. Other nations who actually wanted to fight them and kill them and capture them. Real physical enemies who would come after them. But he also had spiritual enemies. Those who didn't believe in Yahweh, the one true God, but had different beliefs, different religions. And who were opposed to Israel because they believed in God. What about us? Who are our enemies? Uh, We could say for the purposes of applying this psalm, uh, any who oppose us, especially because of our faith. Um, In our context, we don't face a lot of direct uh, physical persecution because of our faith, but there are brothers and sisters around the globe who who literally might be killed for believing in Jesus and and, and living out their faith. That's not the reality in our context. Uh, But we do have enemies. Um, Those who are out to get us because we've given our lives to Christ and seek to follow Him. Um, And there's something about that that some people don't like. Uh, And so they attempt to inflict some kind of harm because of that. It could be family members, neighbors, co-workers, other students in school. Um, There are enemies that we all have. Uh, There could be spiritual enemies, uh, evil, invisible forces that would try to harm us, that are out to get us, that don't want to see us flourishing with God. All right, what's our default mode of fighting our enemies, whomever our enemies may be? Our default mode is to not trust God to handle it, but instead to handle it ourselves in our own way. Uh, To retaliate. To get even. Um, to take justice into our own hands. Um, if we're gossiped about, we gossip in return. If we're slandered, we slander in return. What's this psalm inviting us into? Uh, to surrender all of that to God, to trust Him in His justice, and not to feel like we're the ones that need to exact justice from our enemies. Um, it's to say to God, I trust you, um, you're my refuge. My eyes are on you. You're the one who guards my soul. You're the one who delivers me. Um, Notice where the psalmist is focusing. It's not on his enemies. It's on God. And we shouldn't pass over that too quickly. Um, When we feel under attack from someone, um, that person easily becomes our main focus. Our, our, Our focus is directed towards our enemies in that moment. And we try to then control the situation and get back at them and retaliate or or whatever. Um, But this psalm is inviting us into surrender. Um, And this is how we can not take things so personally when enemies come after us that it's not up to us to deal with it. It's not up to us to respond. Um, Rather than be so utterly consumed with our enemies, the psalmist is saying, hey, look up. Look up to God. Surrender it all to, to Him. He really will handle it. Why? He's just. He's perfectly just. He sees it all. He sees it all in truth. He sees it all clearly. Uh, We can hide in Him and trust that He'll both protect us from ultimate harm and also will ultimately do justice against all of our enemies. Uh, Surrendering everything to God begins by trusting Him with our enemies. That's the first thing. Second thing. 
How do we surrender everything to God? We trust Him with our time. Uh, The theme of waiting is mentioned throughout this psalm. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Look at the end of verse 5. For you I wait all the day long. Verse 21. For I wait for you. Um, What was David waiting for, the author of this psalm? For relief from enemies, the day of salvation, as he looked forward to this promised Messiah that would come, for suffering to end. I mean, he's likely praying for um, uh, unresolved things that affected all of his nation of Israel. And also, he's probably praying for unresolved things in his own life that he wants resolved today. He wants closure on those things today. That's what he was waiting for. And, and, and what we can see in this is that waiting is a massive act of trust. Um, it's willingly saying, I'm not going to act. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to control. I'm just going to wait. And it feels passive. It feels cowardly even sometimes. But it's, it's really neither. It's really an ultimate act of trusting in God. All right, what's our, what's our default mode when it comes to our timing in life. To hurry. To do it now. To get it now. We're worried we're going to miss out on an opportunity. That this is our chance. That the window is closing. Our default mode is to control the timing in our lives. I recently listened to an interview with a guy named Bobby Kim. Who's also known as Bobby Hundreds. Um, who is an entrepreneur and an author who created uh, an LA, L.A. streetwear brand called The Hundreds. Um, and one of the things that the streetwear brand um, was founded on was the art of the limited release. Everything that The Hundreds creates is a limited release. That means that there's only a certain number that they produce. So when it's gone, it's gone. So a lot of what they do is like t-shirts and hoodies. And so they'll come up with t-shirts, t-shirt and hoodie designs where they'll collaborate with like another famous artist. And so they'll make these really cool t-shirts that this other artist contributed to. And they'll only make a certain number. And so everyone who is a fan of this company knows that, all right, when they drop a new t-shirt or a new hoodie, you have to get it right then if you want it. Because when they run out, they're never making it again. Um, Marketers love the phrase, for a limited time only. If you want it, now is your chance. We are so indoctrinated with that way of thinking that that really can become a motto of our way of doing life. Um, Especially if we have kind of a false sense of control in other areas of life, why not control the timing of everything in our lives also? Um, What are we really saying when we insist on our own timing in life? We're saying that we know not only what we need, but also when we need that thing. When we need it to happen. When we need it to come through. Um, And when we get upset that uh, when God doesn't do something when we want Him to do it, it shows us that that we think we know better than God both on the what and the when. That we don't really trust Him. That somehow God is messing up our lives because He's missed the opportune timing to do something. What's this psalm inviting us into? It's inviting us to surrender the timing of our lives to God. Um, To take the perspective that maybe, just maybe, God can see the bigger picture for us, for our lives, for our families, our futures, our relationships, our jobs, 
our schooling, our sports, our needs. And we're invited to trust him with the when as much as we are with the what of our lives. But waiting for someone else to act, it's one of the most out-of-control feelings that we can experience. Think about sitting in a stoplight. You have one car in front of you. The light's red. Suddenly the light turns green. But the car in front of you, the person's head is down looking at their phone and and they miss the green light. You can't make that car go. You are completely dependent. I guess you could honk your horn. But you can't make them drive. You have to wait until they go for you to drive your car. And it's maddening. Waiting is brutal. How do we wait faithfully on the Lord? Um, Instead of pouring all that energy into doing and rushing and making it happen and planning out everything just how we think it should go, we pour all that energy into prayer. Crying out to Him. Surrendering to Him. Prayerfully watching what He's up to in our lives. Realizing that He may be writing a different story than the one we're writing. Um, Yielding ourselves, yielding our timing again and again to Him. And praying a psalm like Psalm 25. It especially helps us to trust God with the timing to wait on Him. So if we're going to surrender everything to God, we have to trust Him with our time. That's the second thing. Third thing. How do we surrender everything to God? We trust Him with our direction. Look at verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Look down at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. Teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Look down at verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and His offspring shall inherit the land. Verse 21 says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me. What does it mean to trust God with our direction in life? Um, Christianity was originally referred to as the way. uh, Like capital W, way. At least four times in the book of Acts. um, It refers to followers of the way. Why? Um, Belief in Jesus is active. Uh, It's like walking on a path. It's doing life in a specific way. And we were made to walk on the path that God has laid out for us. But sin enters the picture. And what is sin? Sin is veering off the path that God has set for us. And it's saying that we're going to choose a path that is better than the one that God has for us. Um, I'll never forget when I was a kid on vacation with my family in Colorado and we were hiking, and um, when you hike up really high in Colorado, there's such high elevation that you get above the tree line. It's just it's crazy. It's so high up in the air that trees don't grow that high. And uh, it's called the alpine tundra. And um, there, while trees can't grow in the alpine tundra, there are very specific types of plants that can grow at that high altitude. And um, they're very unique because they can only grow up that high, and they're also very fragile, the plant life on the alpine tundra. And so when you're in a national park, you have to stay on the trail when you're above the tree line um, because if you step off, you can step on this plant life and you can damage this fragile plant life. I just said plant life about ten times. As a kid, I remember I stepped off uh, the path and there was a ranger that was nearby. There was actually a lot of people kind of on this trail 
uh, up above the tree line. And um, the ranger saw me step off the path. I was generally a rule follower as a kid, so I didn't like getting in trouble. And sure enough, the ranger, probably in a very kind way, came and said, ask me to please stay on the path because it's, you know, it's dangerous for these plants if you step on them. And, and I, I got so upset. I was convinced that I was going to get arrested um, by the National Park Ranger and go to National Park Jail. Um, but what, what was he telling me? To step off the path, it's dangerous for all this plant life uh, on the tundra. Um, it is dangerous for us to step off the path that God has set for us. Um, but sin makes it so tempting. Thinking that we know a better way, that there's a shortcut. There's an easier way where we can avoid the trial or the hardship or the hill or whatever it is that we're facing. And then especially if you are achievement-minded and driven, then look out because the thought of making something uh, happen in your own way, to blaze your own trail, is especially tempting. Um, You know, part of the reason you stay on a trail when you're hiking is because someone has gone before you and found a safe way to get where you're going. Who knows if you go off that trail, what cliff or what dead end awaits you. Um, to surrender to God is to trust Him with our direction in life, to follow His lead, not our own. Why? Because we really believe that, his good, that He's good and that His ways are good. Even when times are hard. Uh, staying on the way means crying out for help and direction. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. This is really the cry of someone who feels like they're alone on the path, wanting to get off the path. Verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. God, help me along the way. Help me stay on the way. When I'm hurting and alone, I just want to get off the way and go my own direction. Um, Trusting God with our direction in life means we have to ask ourselves, do we see God's ways, God's path, as a burden or as flourishing? How would you answer that? Is God's path, God's way for your life, is it a burden for you? Or is it a good path to flourishing? Um, Which leads more to your flourishing? Uh, Questionable financial deals that get you more money now? Or obeying financial laws that are in place that mean less money now? And maybe less money forever? Small, real example. Um, can you surrender your direction in life to the Lord? Really trusting that what He has for you is better, even what it means, what will feel like loss in the short term. Are His paths really good? Um, where do we normally look for direction? Uh, ourselves, our, our plans, our way, or others, earthly wisdom, our network, uh, what, what are our peers doing? Where are we invited to look for direction? Um, what does it look like to follow God's direction and not our own? Um, in the same way that you, uh, you, know, you download the, the trails app when you go hiking and you study the trail and the elevation and where you need to turn and how long it is and, and all those things, um, you have to get familiar with the, the direction that God has given us in His Word. Knowing God in His Word is the key to staying on His path and following His direction. If not, we're going to start ad-libbing and trying to figure it out on our own and making it up as we go. 
But it's such an act of trust, such an act of surrender, especially if you have a track record of making really capable decisions in life. Um, To really pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Do you hear what's at stake with that prayer? To pray, not my will, but your will. What's at stake is that that thing that you really want may not happen. God may have something else in mind for you. But you're surrendering it before the Lord and you're trusting Him that what He has, what, what He has really is better. That's the third thing. We trust Him with our direction. Fourth thing, how do we surrender everything to God? We trust Him with our sins. Look at verse 5. He says, For you are the God of my salvation. Verse 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Look at verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it's great. End of verse 18, forgive all my sins. What do we typically do with our sin? That may seem like a weird question, but everyone has some way of dealing with their sin and guilt, uh, their moral failures from their life. Um, Whatever your beliefs are, even if you're here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you have some way that you attempt to right the wrongs in your life. What are some common ways of dealing with our sin and guilt on our own? One is that we ignore it. Um, We said before, it's kind of like trying to hold an inflated beach ball underwater at the pool where you can kind of do it for a time, but eventually that ball is going to pop back up again and come straight out of the water. But we try to do this with our sin. We try to ignore it. Uh, And we usually try to ignore our sin and guilt by getting really busy. If we never have quiet, if we never have downtime, then we're not going to have time for that guilt to rise to the surface. And so we just get busy in order to ignore it. And if we can't ignore our guilt and sin, we try to self-atone self-atone, come up with some way to pay for that sense of guilt on our own. So sometimes we, we hate ourselves and we verbally berate ourselves, even out loud, telling ourselves how bad we are, how terrible we are. Or we inflict physical pain, we self-harm. Uh, because there's something about that feeling of physical pain that can connect to our guilt, where we know we've done something wrong, and if we can feel some pain, then it feels like we're paying for our sin. Um, Another way to self-atone is to try to just tip the scales in the other direction. Um, Let's say you you lose it with your your children if you're a parent and your anger flares up. You have an outburst of anger and and you feel that guilt and shame kind of wash over you after the fact. And and then maybe that leads to a three-day period where you are just the nicest, most gentle, kindest person to your children and also uh, to others. Um, It can be subtle, but we can try to self-atone by making up for our bad by just doing more good, really focusing on being good. We ignore our guilt. We self-atone for our guilt. Sometimes we just try to hide our sin and guilt. It feels too shameful. Um, If we put words to it and talk about it, it makes it feel too real. So we don't talk about it. We don't confess it. We hide it. We cover our tracks because we feel uniquely messed up. Um, uniquely broken. Surely no one else struggles in that way. No one else has done what we have done. Uh, So our logic is if we can just hide that thing that we did, if we can hide those feelings of guilt, then surely it will go away. And if we didn't, uh, it'll it'll feel as though that that, that it it didn't happen 
or it doesn't exist anymore. It's not a part of our story. Um, because it doesn't feel safe to bring it into the light. Um, because if we do, if we do bring that thing out into the light, if we stop hiding it, then we can no longer control it. Uh, we can't control what's going to come of our sin and guilt if it comes out into the light. My late grandmother on my dad's side was born during the Great Depression and was raised in the aftermath of, of just a whole country and people dealing with just tremendous widespread financial loss and, and this shaped the way that she lived and the way that she handled money. But we didn't know this until after she died. Uh, as my grandfather was cleaning out the house after she had passed, um, he found various amounts of cash um, hidden all throughout in very random places in the house. And we came to learn that this is what my grandmother called her hidey holes for money. She had hidey holes all throughout the house. She would take cash in various sums and roll it up and just stick it places in the house. And only she knew where she was putting it. And uh, you can think about her story and, you know, she didn't trust the bank. She didn't trust anyone else with her money. So she was going to take that cash and she was going to hide it all over her house. Um, For her, hiding was a way of controlling. This is true of us with our sin and guilt. Hiding is a way of controlling. It feels like we're still in the driver's seat. Um, But what can start out feeling like um, control begins to slowly over time eat away at us. Our sin and our guilt, it nags at us. Why? We cannot bear our sin and guilt on our own. We can't do it in this life and we certainly can't do it in the next. Um, The invitation from this psalm is to trust God with our sin. How do we do that? Look at the last verse, verse 22. King David prays, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. He's personifying the nation of Israel. He's crying out for a Redeemer to come. Uh, King David doesn't know the full details like we do. But a Redeemer is coming. Jesus is the one who would come and who would defeat all of our enemies. Um, He's the one who would come in perfect timing to rescue us. He's the one who would come living out perfectly all the ways of God. And He's the one who would come and deal with our sins for us. Um, Rather than trying to hide our sins, when we surrender them to Jesus, you know what happens? Instead of trying to hide our sin, we can actually hide ourselves in Him. And when God the Father looks at us, He looks down, He sees His Son's perfect righteousness, His Son's perfect resume. And He sees the forgiveness that was achieved for us on the cross. Complete forgiveness. So rather than trying to hide them, we get to hide in Jesus. All because we've surrendered it to Him. Here's the question we have to be able to answer. How do we know we can trust God enough to surrender not just one part of our lives to Him, but every part of our lives to Him. Um, It's one thing to be open to the idea of surrendering it all to God, but if we're really going to do it, we have to know without a doubt that He is trustworthy. How do we know that He is trustworthy? The cross. Jesus surrendered everything, even His own life, So that we can surrender everything to Him and know for sure that we'll be saved. 
And this is how we become friends with God that's talked about in verse 14. That that His covenant promise to His people to be our God and us to be His people forever is possible because Jesus came and fulfilled everything in order to make that happen. Do you believe this? Uh, You have the opportunity this morning to surrender your life to the Lord. Uh, And maybe this is a day where everything changes from you, where you finally give up control and you trust God. Let's pray together. Father, these things we're talking about are so difficult. And we can't do it on our own. Uh, We are so locked in to um, handling our enemies uh, the way that we want to handle our enemies. The way that we think it needs to happen. We're so locked in to um, the timing of things happening in our lives uh, at certain points. We want things to happen when we want them to happen. Um, Father, we're so locked into following our own path in life, to our own direction. And we are so locked into dealing with sin on our own. And so, uh, would you forgive us? And would you come and meet us by your Holy Spirit? Help us to surrender all these areas of life to you. Thanks for Psalm 25 that it helps us to do this. And Father, would you prepare us now, even for greater surrender in you, as we come to this table this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.